It's Monday, November the 15th. This is the Andrew Pearshire coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... Farquhar, it's cruel. You know it is. So I'm talking to the chef who's created a vegan version and he says it's incredibly popular. How people are still skirting the Grenfell regulations. We're getting the latest from the Queen's former press secretary on why he thinks all's well and she'll be back on public duty very soon. But first, all praise the Liverpool taxi driver who almost certainly foiled a potentially lethal terror attack by locking the suspect in his taxi. It blew up seconds later. A taxi driver has been paid for his bravery and remarkable foresight after he locked the doors on somebody he thought might be a suicide bomber in his cab, potentially saving dozens, if not more, lives. David Perry's cab became a fireball outside the Liverpool Women's Hospital shortly before the 11am commemorations at the Cenotaph. Boris Johnson said it appeared the taxi driver had acted with incredible presence of mind and bravery. The Prime Minister is chairing an emergency Cobra meeting in response to the terror attack. I'm joined now by Chris Phillips, who's former head of the National Counter-Terrorism Security Office, and he's a former Detective Chief Inspector also of the Metropolitan Police. Chris, when I heard that the taxi driver was initially trying to head for the Remembrance Day uh, commemorations near the Cenotaph in Liverpool, it struck me that this was um, almost a copycat of the IRA in the Enniskillen Cenotaph outrage back in the 1980s in Northern Ireland. Hi, Andrew. Yes, the the, the issue here is that if you understand the threat of uh, al-Qaeda, ISIS-style terrorism, it's all about crowded places, it's all about people. Now, at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning in Liverpool, probably the only uh, the only places that were crowded were going to be uh, the Remembrance Day uh, services. So almost certainly that was the target. And we don't know yet why he ended up at the Liverpool uh, Women's Hospital. But I, I think the driver may be able to help police with that, and uh, maybe that's something we'll find out as we go along. Extraordinary that he became suspicious of the of his passenger who'd initially asked to go to the cenotaph. The traffic was terrible. Then, for some reason, as you say, they headed for the women's hospital. But the the, the, the driver uh, observed in his in his mirror that something flashing in the in the guy's clothing. He was fiddling with something, and just clearly thought terror attack. Yeah, well, good on him. And uh, and and the simple fact is that he almost certainly has saved a lot of lives. If you look back at uh, a terrorist attack with something very similar, I think, the size of device, etc., what we saw at Manchester at the Ariana Grande uh, concert was hundreds of people dying. And, and if that uh, was replicated with this, and it does appear, actually, that probably the full device hasn't gone off, that it's been uh, a detonator only. But, we're, again, time will tell that this, uh, this man's actions has, have saved lots and lots of lives. We're not sure yet, but we suspect that the police knew the terrorists, I think we can probably call him that, um, uh, because they very quickly arrested three men in the Kensington area of Liverpool in connection with the blast. Well, they've certainly identified who that suspect is, and that will come out in due course. Of course, what the police are most concerned about is the fact that this may have been one of a, a number of people uh, wanting to go out and blow themselves up on, on that day or other days. So, so they needed to deal with the threat of that first. That's most important that there aren't other people out there with bombs. But also then they have to deal with the uh, bomb factory, which is a, a nightmare to deal with. Uh, the, the homemade explosive is so volatile that uh, the police and security services will have 
nightmare to deal with that. Uh, what is the what is the advice of the police in these sort of situations, Chris? So this guy very wisely, shrewdly jumped out the car, locked the doors, uh, and within seconds we think the the, the the car blew up. But is there advice? I mean, he wasn't exactly a have a go hero, was he? But um, his actions clearly saved a lot of uh, potential carnage. Yeah, it, it, I don't know how you even start to advise someone with uh, that thinks that they've got a, a terrorist in the back with a bomb. But but certainly the video that I've seen shows the bomb going off and him then jumping out. Uh, but the, the key point was that um, he took he took him away, took the terrorist away from crowds, which is about as much as you can do. I mean, the, the advice really is to run, hide, and tell. And uh, you know, if you can't, uh, you're in a car. It's difficult to run. But the further you can get away from that device, the better it is. It's another sign, isn't it, um, Chris, that the uh, threat of terror attacks is never very far away from our major towns and cities. Andrew, we only a few weeks ago had a uh, an MP murdered. Yeah. Uh, if you look across the channel in France, they've had a, a succession of, of people stabbed by terrorists. Uh, unfortunately, I'm, I, I'm really concerned about the months uh, coming up on the run-up to Christmas, uh, and I'm really concerned about the months afterwards. We've got uh, we've got an awful lot of people in the UK who are extremely dangerous, uh, some of whom have been released from prison sentences uh, for being terrorists, and they have been de-radicalised. Uh, and I think we've got some uh, horrible times ahead of us. But, um, you know, I think we, we, we've got to remind people about the need to protect themselves, protect their locations, report people who are suspicious. Uh, and, uh, you know, at some stage, you know, this driver, whether or not he's had information, he obviously realised that something was amiss and he, de- he tried to deal with it as best he could. Just finally, Chris, I was talking to some MPs, some Tory MPs the other day. Uh, they're deeply concerned about the migrants crossing the channel, illegally crossing the channel, uh, because they say, how do we know? Uh, obviously, we, we have to assume that most of them are either economic migrants or genuine asylum seekers, but how do we know, know whether any of them are in fact terror types who've been indoctrinated by IS? We've got huge problems in Western Europe. We, we live in a liberal democracy uh, we've got uh, people that have been released from prison who are still terrorists. We've got others that have been self-radicalizing on the internet over the over the lockdown period. And we're also allowing people in who we don't know who they are, who are deliberately ripping up their passports so that they can't be identified. This is a nightmare scenario. And, you know, t- to put it quite bluntly, we're asking the police and the security services to spin lots of plates uh, and more and more plates every year with less and less resources. So, so we can expect Unfortunately, if we allow this to happen in our society, we can expect more terrorist attacks. Indeed. Uh, a salutary warning there from Chris Phillips, who's former head of the National Counterterrorism Security Office. Thanks for joining us. So visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, and of course all our other podcasts and our video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So there's increased speculation that the Queen will scale back her public commitments after she missed the Cenotaph event on Sunday. Buckingham Palace said as recently as Thursday that it was her firm intention to be there, uh, despite having cancelled some engagements due to ill health. The palace, in an unusual step, said she'd strained a muscle in her back. Unusual, because they don't normally give any detail about Her Majesty's health. I'm joined now by Dickie, Dickie Arbiter, former press secretary to the Queen and royal commentator. Dickie, 
Um, do you think they told us the detail of what the problem was because they wanted to try to dampen speculation that perhaps she, there's something more serious afoot, bearing in mind she's 95? Well, she is 95. I don't think there is anything serious afoot. But spraining a back, spraining a muscle is very painful. Yeah. And anybody who has done so, and I've had back problems, so I know what I'm talking about. Doing a round trip of 50 miles, standing for half an hour would have just been unbearable for her. And that's why reluctantly, last minute, they did cancel. Scaling back, um, well, she scaled back pretty, pretty much uh, quite a lot at the moment. Uh, and I think it all depends on what the engagement is. She wants to be seen. She wants to get out and about. But they will have to measure where she goes and how she goes there and how far she travels. It's not a case of not seeing the Queen anymore. It's just a case of how and when we're going to see her. And also, some people are saying, oh, she can't do her job properly if she can't be at events like the uh, the Royal Albert Hall Service of Remembrance and being at the Cenotaph on Sunday. But she does many other things apart from public engagements, doesn't she, as monarch? She does a lot of things besides public engagements. You know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. You know, we've got her red boxes. These are state papers. Only she can deal with those, and she deals with them on a daily basis. There is correspondence that she deals with. She does audiences, okay? She hasn't done them face-to-face, but she has done them via Zoom or virtual. Uh, so work does continue. As we heard last night from Boris Johnson, he saw the Queen last week and she was in good spirits. We saw the Queen, uh, queen on, on, on a video link uh, to COP26 with her message. She seemed pretty good. But if you've got a sprained muscle, it is very painful, and any movement is going to hurt even more, particularly if you're 95. So don't write the Queen off. Just give her a bit of time to get better. Absolutely. And Dickie, I'm sure already Her Majesty is putting her mind to her annual Christmas broadcast. It's a, it's a highlight of the year for her, and we we know that audiences for that broadcast have in fact been increasing in recent years. Audiences have been increasing. The Queen acts as a sort of comforter. Um, you know, how comforted were people last year at the time, April the 5th, when she spread that message uh, at the height of the COVID pandemic, when she said, we will see our family again, we will see our friends again, we will meet again. So yes, the Christmas message is important, important to her. It is important to people to see and hear her. It's unfortunate that she missed the cenotaph because the cenotaph she sees as important as the Christmas message, obviously for a different reason. So, yes, she will be working on the Christmas message and we will see her. I hope that we see her before that, not necessarily just on audiences, but actually in person. But it is for her to get better. Uh, it does take time uh, to uh, for muscle healing, uh, particularly if you're 95. But in the fullness of time, we will see her. Absolutely. And we'll look forward to it. That's Dickie Arbiter, who is, of course, a former press secretary to Her Majesty the Queen. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So fire chiefs are warning that unscrupulous developers are deliberately creating buildings which dodge post-Grenfell fire safety regulations. London Fire Brigade's Assistant Commissioner Paul Jennings says there are hundreds, if not thousands, of new buildings which may be 
deliberately designed to avoid rules including blocks designed to be lower than a 59-foot limit to be considered a high-rise building. He joins me now. Paul, Grenfell Tower was one of the worst tragedies, uh, fire tragedies in this country in our history. It's pretty shocking, isn't it, if developers who are very rich, make lots of money, are still trying to circumvent the rules which are now designed to prevent a repetition. It is very shocking, yes, indeed. Um, and, and whether it's developers, architects, planners, designers, I, I, I couldn't be specific on who's doing it, but uh, they, they are definitely gaming the system, looking at ways to avoid maximising fire safety measures that we, we all want to see in buildings and work operating to ensure the safety of all of the residents. What's the big issue they're, they're getting around? It's the, it's the height of the building, is it? Yes, so we've got numerous examples where they are looking to build under that 18-metre threshold, examples where they'll build a floor just below that height, um, the entrance to that floor, but then build two floors above that and say that doesn't count because that's now part of the apartment. Um, We've also got designers circumventing the guidance saying well if it specifically doesn't say that then there isn't anything to say we don't have to do it so we've got an example where they're allowing smoke egress into a lobby that includes a disabled refuge just because the guidance specifically doesn't rule that out what what would we would seem to be obvious measures but they're just not grasping them uh, and you know that they're, if they're not observing the letter of the law, they're certainly breaking the spirit of the law. Is there anything local authorities who are the planning regulators can do about this? Well, they're the ones that sign off sign off the plans. Right. As you, as you know, we, we are a statutory consultee. Yeah. So, so we will make our, our views known, whether they then listen to those views and, and the designers amend their plans. But we're also seeing designers that that amend their plans and don't resubmit them to us for consultation. So even that's slightly gaming the system. Um, And then you're reliant on the competency of the builders once they've got those plans and whether they alter them themselves or, or get them checked as they go along that building journey. Why are they doing this? I mean, I always assume that in um, uh, when property developers are involved, God forgive me if I'm if I'm uh, casting more in the same light, but I assume this will be something to do with cutting costs and maximising profits. I would anticipate that 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 to be the case. So every square meter, you know, within especially London, where where I work. Uh, cost money so if you're giving away some of that square meter to extra staircases different fire systems adding cost to your development through sprinklers ventilation systems then that's taken away your cost profit margin i would suggest yeah um and um the the grenfell tower inquiry made all sorts of recommendations paul didn't it how many of those are being followed in these new builds well, there's a number of recommendations that, that cross not only us as a fire and rescue services, but were, were aimed at government to, to bring into place within the Fire Safety Act. We're waiting for those regulations to be laid down, and I think those will come within the next six weeks. But there's, there's a number there for developers to pick up in terms of signage, the maintenance of lifts, the ventilation, the signage, premises information box. So there's a whole whole raft of stuff that's coming, not only for new buildings, but for existing buildings. So so responsible persons and, and building owners will need to take that into account over the next months and years. 
And of course, the other problem, Paul, we know this is an ongoing problem. The government's locked in battle with the developers, as are the leaseholders. Still many, many uh, tower blocks, blocks of flats up and down the country still have cladding similar to the uh, cladding which um, bursts into flames at the Grenfell Tower. Yes, I mean, we, we've released today our updated figures on, on buildings in London that we know about that have got building defects, and that number has increased to uh, 1,129. That's an, a net increase of 22 on last month's figures. So, so And roughly 70% of those are due to cladding, but we're seeing an increase in the number that are due to other defects, the more unseen ones, the lack of compartmentation, cavity barriers, and ventilation systems that aren't working. So as we're seeing remediation take place around cladding, we're seeing other defects become known. And are these potentially fire, fire problems too? Yes, I mean, we, we've seen a number of fires this year where unseen smoke travel can affect our operations and the safety of the residents. Recently, we had one in South London where the, the smoke appeared on the seventh and sixth floors and our crews went to investigate. But after a little bit of investigation, the fire was actually took place in the basement and it was due to these unseen voids that the smoke had travelled up the building. Very worrying, isn't it? We're glad you're on the case. Um, uh, let's hope somebody in government's listening to what you're saying. Thank you very much, Andrew. All right, great to talk to you. That was Paul Jennings, who's London Fire Brigade's Assistant Commissioner. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, so it's big day sport, catching up on all the weekend sport. Here is Matt Gatford, who is, of course, the Deputy Sports Editor. Now, Matt, this is getting very, very difficult for Michael Vaughan, Great England test match hero, the champion of the Ashes victory in 2005, because a, an England player has said he was making those pretty racist remarks when he was at Yorkshire. Yes, that's right. So um, Adil Rashid, who's the England spinner, who's obviously been involved in the England T20 World Cup campaign, which uh, which ended, well, the, the whole World Cup ended at the weekend. And Rashid, now that that World Cup is out of the way, uh, prior to that, he hadn't been willing to discuss it because he'd been focusing on the cricket mm. and he'd been focusing on the World Cup. Now that's out of the way, he has come forward uh, this morning and said that he was there when Vaughan said, when Vaughan is alleged to have said, there's too many of you lot in this county, as in too many Asian players Terrible. Uh, that's the accusation Vaughan obviously strenuously denies it uh, but that is the accusation that has been made and Rashid the, by um, Azim Rafiq who is the one who mm. uh, the cricketer who brought all this uh, out in the open and Adil Rashid who, who was one of the players uh, was there he says yes I was there and I heard uh, Vaughan say it he says he's stepping forward and coming uh, forward because he wants this uh, cancer of racism that as he puts it in the game uh, rooted out uh, and he's backing up uh, his former teammate Rafiq and saying that Vaughan you did say that now as I say Vaughan strenuously denies it uh, but it uh, it certainly makes it interesting for Vaughan ahead of the DCMS hearing which is tomorrow mm. uh, where um, where Rafiq will be speaking and will be making we assume making um, lots more alle allegations yeah. about what went on and, and lots more statements about what went on at Yorkshire at the time and it's, it's so that's the Department of Culture Media and Sport Select Committee hearing he's yes. in Parliament I think my my look, journalism law serves me he can make allegations 
uh, which are protected by law. Yes, because so, they speak in Parliament. Exactly. So he can he can name who he, he wants can. tomorrow, and he can have no comeback legally yeah, on, on whatever he says. So it will be very interesting to see who he fingers tomorrow, mm. what he says, uh, whether there's more accusations to be made against Vaughan, or whether it's the general setup yeah. of Yorkshire. Um, and Yorkshire will be represented there by their former chief exec. They'll also be the head of the ECB, Tom Harrison, up mm. uh, where all this will become public, and then we'll see what comes out. And am, am I correct, um, Matt? Michael Vaughan has a pretty uh, successful career in the media. Yeah, absolutely. And that is presumably, that work is now drying up rapidly. Well, he has a show on the BBC. I mean, he works for you know for the BBC as a show with uh, with Phil Tufnell called the Tuffers and Vaughan Show. Uh, he's been stood down from that mm. temporarily while this goes on, so he that is uh, on hold. He also has yeah various sponsors like Yorkshire mm. Tea, Advanced oh. Hair Studios, etc. Uh, etc. Et he has a Telegraph column, yeah. uh, so he has lots of uh, lots of sources of income and lots of means of employment. Um, and yes, at the moment, it just seems to be that it's just the BBC have suspended him. Yeah. Now, um, also, we want to talk about the fact that um, Lewis Hamilton, he had a great drive yesterday, came from 10th on the grid to first place. He he did. It was it was astonishing, and he overtook his great rival uh, Max Verstappen in in what was a thrilling race. Now F one over the last few years hasn't been thrilling, in mm. in my uh, humble opinion, you Never will get yeah, you will get your petrol heads. Been. Well, it, there I would dispute that there were times down the years where it's been fascinating, but it's been a bit of a procession of late. So this season, obviously, we're for at last we're seeing a proper mm. uh, duel for the title. The lead now has been cut at the top. Verstappen's lead is now down to fourteen uh, points ahead of uh, Hamilton. Um, and uh, it was a brilliant race yesterday. He managed to overtake him. Uh, there was a there was an incident earlier on where uh, Hamilton tried to go around the outside of Verstappen. Verstappen actually went off the track and forced Hamilton even further off the track. So both racing almost in the dirt, mm. got back on track um, and and managed to keep going. But eventually Hamilton uh, chased him down, and overtook him. Uh, so with just a few races to go. Uh, and just finally, it's World Cup fever tonight. We're playing. San Marino, which must be the weakest team in international football, aren't they? England, that's England, I mean, uh, World Cup qualifier. So England need one point, just one point, to uh, to finally uh, reach the World Cup mm. uh, in Qatar next year. Um, which they, so they're going through the campaign. It's their final game. They need a point against uh, against the lowly San Marino. That won't be a problem. I can guarantee you yeah. that uh, they will they will hammer them. San Marino have played 184 games in their international career and won one, oh. uh, drawn seven. So um, who did they beat? I'm not sure actually. P- probably somebody really should have known that. Shouldn't I? Yeah. Yes, I will, it would have to have been. So yeah. um, so what will we get? Three or four goals? Well, I always think we should win it by five or six. Right. Uh, a bit like Albania on Friday. I mean, Albania are a good side, and we beat them five 0 on we? Friday. So. Um, is that a World Cup qualifier? That was a World Cup qualifier, which means we need, as I say, a point tonight. And we're there. Mm. We're in Qatar. Uh, and then we can talk about the rights and the wrongs of whether we yeah. should be in Qatar another time. Yeah. And Albania, are they highly highly ra- ranked in football? Mm, not massively, but they're, you know, they're a decent side. They finished third. They will finish third in the group. They won five, uh, lost four of their qualifying right. campaigns. So that was a good win against a decent yeah. side. San Marino, uh, in this qualifying campaign, have played nine, lost nine, scored once and let in 36. So I imagine we'll, uh, it's almost pointless them being there and I imagine we'll smash them up tonight in the first half and then take our foot off a bit like we did on Friday. And then we'll be there. We'll have qualified for the World Cup, which is the whole point. Absolutely. That's the Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood with the latest. Vegan restaurateurs have been invited to meet British government advisers to discuss how to create plant-based, 
Farquhar. The Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs is consulting on legislation to outlaw the sale and import of the liver-based spread. I'm joined now by Alexis Gautier, who runs fine dining restaurant Gautier Soho, who was invited to speak to the government about his recipe for Farquhar. Now, yours, Alexis, is a vegan recipe. Um, how do you do it? Well, that's, that's very simple. We actually um, roast some walnuts. We use some lentils and, um, and onion and soya sauce. And then we, we, we mix it. And with the, when we add mushrooms, um, we actually get um, a flavor, a depth of flavor that yeah, is very reminiscent to what you find in, in foie gras, in the original recipe. Um, so it's very simple and it's really delicious. And no, 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 no gavage, no, no sink involved, no, no torture involved. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Because Farquhar production is illegal in the UK on animal cruelty grounds because, bluntly putting it, Alexis, ducks and geese whose livers are harvested are force-fed to make it. Horrible. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's, a, it's an atrocious way to, um, to, to produce a product. And in fact, a luxury product. Um, geese and, uh, and ducks are being force-fed. And I can assure you, they... <laughs> Obviously, they don't want to be force-fed because it's not natural for them and their liver, their liver becomes 10 times the size of what they should be. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's awful. There is, um, and this has to stop. This really yeah, has to stop. because I think, I think if I'm right, correct, that the, the gavage, the force-feeding process, grain is poured into a funnel or tube, thrust down the bird's neck. That's really brutal. It, yeah, it's very brutal. And um, although the, the, the French will tell you that um, um, uh, the, the, the duck and the geese are actually designed to have something <laughs> forced through their throat, it's, 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 it's not true at all. Nobody wants to have um, a piece of plastic uh, down their throat. And as far as I'm concerned, they have never asked them. <laughs> no, indeed. indeed. Now, now, yeah. now, the taste of uh, the, the, the traditional fargoa is very rich, Alexis. What does your, does your fargoa taste similar or has it got a completely different flavour? No, the flavour is very similar because right. we used walnut and the walnut is very rich in, um, in it's very oily. And so it replaces actually the, um, the, the fatness of the, uh, of the duck. But at the end of the day, what we eat in foie gras is what the duck has been fed um, and it's mainly grains and things they, they, they pick in the, in the, <laughs> around them. Um, it's, it's all natural. It's, it tastes like, um, and a foie, a foie gras is really, really, really similar to, uh, to the normal foie gras. Uh, again, as I said, without the help of the, of the duck or the geese, which is wonderful. And, and, and people who come to your restaurant, I know it's very popular, Gautier Soho, um, are, are they ordering the vegan uh, foie gras in, his, in his, the same sort of numbers as they were be- the uh, traditional one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. People come and we actually offer them the, the foie gras because we want to promote this, this yes. product. Um, and and every, I mean, I haven't had anybody who said, oh my gosh, this is, it's, it's, it's truly delicious. It's, and it's, I mean, on the toast, on the, on the, the toasted sourdough bread and a glass of, uh, of white wine, you, you, you will not see the difference. <laughs> it's actually, um, it's as delicious and as uh, satisfying as, uh, as foie gras. And are you going to are you going to you talk to the government about this? Do you think yes. there's will your will your product be? Are you going to market it beyond your restaurant? Well, if there is if there is a demand, of course. I mean, at the moment, I want people to come to my restaurants to 
to enjoy it and yeah. uh, and to make the effort to <laughs> to travel to to the restaurant. You know, restaurants have had a, a tough eighteen months. Yes, so it's of course. Nice to have them back into the restaurant and 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 promote. But I have to say that I'm 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 so proud that um, that 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 this government is um, is is doing what he's doing because you know a modern country like you know great britain wants to be uh, needs to show the way and i know a lot of countries are also against, a lot of people are against foie gras and they want to see that things are changing things are happening because in 2021 we can live without foie gras we do not need to have animal um, um you know suffering from 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 gavage and force feed and um, we don't need that and uh, and um, although i'm french i'm also british I'm very proud to be British when, yeah. when, when, when they are going to, to, to ban the Fraga once and for all. Well, that's very interesting. And um, uh, I wonder, I, I'm curious because we know that Boris Johnson likes his food, Alexis. I wonder if he eats Fraga or whether he's ever tried your vegan version. Perhaps you should send him some. Tried the, <laughs> I've never sent him um, any, but I can tell you that when I wrote to, um, when I wrote to 10 Downing Street yeah. um, about a year ago and I asked, um, uh, the Prime Minister and personally asked, he actually replied to me. Did he really? Yeah, yeah, this is something we are looking into. And I was amazed because, you know, sometimes you write to the Prime Minister yeah. <laughs> because you're upset with something. But I was amazed. I actually received a letter back and, 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 and things have changed, things have moved. And, um, and so it just showed that sometimes when you really, um, but when you really believe in something, things happen. But I do think that um, 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 Prime Minister Johnson, I think he, he doesn't eat um, um, foie gras. No, I'm <laughs> and, sure he doesn't. And I will send him. I will send him a, a jar of foie gras once. Uh, no, and, and if you and, and if he then comes back to you and says he's enjoyed it, will you let us know? Because we'll get you back on the uh, podcast and we can talk about it. Yeah, absolutely, I will. Sounds great. All right, that's very good to talk to you. That's Alexis Gaultier, who runs the fine dining restaurant Gaultier in Soho. If you haven't tried it, you should, because it's excellent food. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.